Hello, and a warm welcome to my Asthma Spotlight podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Levy. I'm a family doctor with a special interest in asthma. My aim is to help people with asthma and also their caregivers to understand more about this disease and how to stay safe. I will share lots of information about asthma. However, I will not be able to answer any personal medical questions for which you should really consult your own doctor. The opinions I express in the Asthma Spotlight podcast are my own and they are not intended as and shall not be understood or construed as medical, health or professional advice of any kind. Please do see the disclaimer details in the podcast description. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome, everybody, to today's uh, Asthma Spotlight podcast. Today, I'm delighted and really honored to be joined by Professor Sir Peter Barnes. Um, uh, Peter, can you uh, tell us a bit about yourself, please, and... Um, I must say, I must congratulate you on your recent knighthood. It was really, really highly deserved. Well, hello, Mark, and thank you very much. It was certainly a surprise to me. Um, I'm Professor of Thoracic Medicine at the National Heart and Lung Institute in London, and I was Head of Respiratory Medicine at Imperial College from 1987 until 2017, so a long time. And I spent my time doing clinical work, but mainly doing research into asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, looking into the underlying mechanisms of these diseases and how treatments worked and how we can find better treatments. So I'm still doing research. Um, I'm mainly working on COPD now, but I still have a great interest in new asthma treatments that are in development. Thanks. So can can we go back a little bit and can you can you tell us a bit about how, how what got you interested into um, respiratory disease and uh, what made you focus your research on this area when you first started? Well, I actually had asthma as a child 
And I remember having to take isoprenaline inhalers, which had dreadful side effects. So it was quite a, a troublesome disease to have in those days when we didn't have good therapies. Um, but I was working um, to try and become a consultant in general medicine. I was a medical registrar at University College Hospital in London, where I was doing a general medical rotation, which means I was working in different specialties. And I, I really wanted to stay working with different diseases. So the next step in my career should be a senior registrar post, which meant you had to choose a specialty. And I didn't really have a specialty. Um, in particular. So I applied for lots of different jobs in different specialties, like heart disease, uh, endocrine disease, etc. And I never could get an appointment. And then I applied for a senior registrar post in respiratory medicine at the Hammersmith Hospital in London, which I didn't get either. But the a uh, person in charge of that department, Professor Neil Pride, phoned me at home and said, you really need to do some research. And I was very reluctant to do that because I thought it would waste my time in my clinical career. Um, but he said, I know that Colin Dollery in clinical pharmacology at Hammersmith is looking for someone to do some research on asthma. And I thought, well, that at least is something that I know about because I suffered from it. So I thought, well, I would would do this post. And he said, just do it for a while and see how you like it. And I really got attracted into research. And so I started off doing research in asthma and then continued ever since to do research in airway diseases. So at the time I, I was working on um, the role of adrenaline in asthma, because adrenaline is, is something that makes asthma patients better. But we didn't know anything about the levels of adrenaline in people with asthma. So that was my first research project. And I got really fascinated by research and wanted to go on. So I, I was lucky to work with some really good people and also to get some really good people to work with me. And that's how we built up a really large department. In fact, the, eventually um, I was appointed to the Brompton Hospital as the first professor of clinical pharmacology. And that was in 1985. And then two years later, Margaret Turner Warwick retired as the head of respiratory medicine. And I took over her post and built up a, a very large department. In fact, it was the largest one in Europe. And we focused mainly at that time on asthma research and then later got into COPD research. So that's a sort of summary of my career. Wow. Well, how, how fortunate the respiratory world was that you didn't get the jobs you were applying for. And <laughs> uh, the foresight of, uh, of Neil Pride was really and also Colin Dollery. In fact, I, I remember them very well because when I came from South Africa, I did the three-month Hammersmith course uh, in advanced medicine 
we're uh, there with the lecturers. And I can't remember you. I think we met after that. We met at a meeting in Sweden a few years later um, when uh, um, you, you were speaking. And so before we talk about the um, medications and the drugs in asthma, um, in the UK at the moment, our outcomes due to asthma, that's hospital admissions and asthma attacks and asthma deaths, are really not very good. In fact, we we rank among the worst in the whole world, really. Um, what do you think needs to change in order to change those outcomes? Well, I'm pretty convinced that the main problem is not that we don't have good drugs because we have excellent treatments for asthma. The problem is that patients don't take them properly. Either they don't take them at all or they don't use the inhalers properly that that they need to get the drugs into the the right place in the lung so i think poor adherence is the major barrier to getting asthma controlled in the community as you know my colleague martin partridge did a study which was over 15 years ago showing that half of the people with asthma in European countries, including the UK, uh, were poorly controlled. And that's despite the fact that they'd been prescribed effective medication, namely inhaled steroids. So this was a shocking result, but was repeated in other parts of the world where it was even worse. And what was even more shocking is that 10 years later, after this study, the results hadn't changed at all. So asthma is still very poorly controlled in the real world because people are not using the medication properly. Okay, so um, people not using medication properly is is one factor. What about the um, adherence by medical professionals? I mean, we've got lots of advances in research and um, yeah, it's all very well to say that people aren't taking their medication, but um, what do you think are other other possible reasons for this? Well, of course, doctors are, are very slow to implement changes in therapy. I mean, it's reckoned that that many GPs are still using the same sort of treatment approaches they were taught in medical school. Because it's difficult to get people to change, especially if they're having to look at a wide range of diseases. So they may not read in detail about advances in management. So adherence to guidelines is very poor amongst healthcare professionals. And that means we need to do better education and also make the case more clearly for why treatment should change. I mean, in the case of asthma, it's shocking that that poor control of asthma is very expensive. And it was often thought that inhalers that were more expensive, uh, for example, steroid inhalers compared with bronchodilators, uh, would would be too costly. But in fact, taking inhalers that work is the most effective way of treating asthma to reduce costs because you reduce hospital admissions, time off work, etc. So taking the medicine properly is very important. 
But another issue relating to doctors is that, that very few medical practitioners know how inhalers should be used correctly. In one survey from Spain, they found that only 10% of medical practitioners, and that was general practitioners and hospital doctors, were able to use inhalers correctly, or at least to explain how inhalers should be used correctly. So this is shocking. And I think probably medical students are not taught enough about inhaler use and and how important it is to teach people to use the inhalers correctly. So doctors need to be better educated. And of course, patients need to be taught how to use their inhalers correctly. And even if you teach a patient to use the inhaler correctly, something like 40% of patients um, have forgotten how to use it correctly after only a month. So it needs constant reinforcement. And I don't think doctors realize the importance of this. Yeah, because often um, um, doctors and nurses looking after people with asthma only do one assessment a year and often it's a fairly brief assessment and often it's done by people without adequate training. And um, there's another aspect to this. And I remember you you talking about or you wrote an article years ago about the low priority of respiratory medicine compared to other diseases by um, governments and uh, and health authorities and the people who pay for medical care. Um, do you think that's changed much? No, unfortunately, it hasn't. Um, I mean, I think it's still the case that respiratory medicine, at least respiratory diseases, are the most poorly funded of all diseases in relation to the burden of disease. Um, at least in the UK, um, it, it's better in other countries like Germany and the USA, where they have better funding for respiratory medicine. But in the UK, the, the funding is, is really quite appalling, considering the burden of disease. When asthma and COPD, for example, are amongst the commonest diseases that GPs will see. Yeah. And yet the funding for research is so poor. And I think it's partly related to the fact that, well, smoking is obviously a, an important factor in COPD and people don't feel that you should fund diseases that are self-induced, although that doesn't seem to apply to heart disease or diabetes. Um, but the other issue is, is there's a very low public awareness of lung disease compared with diseases like heart disease, cancer, and brain diseases. So it has a very low public perception. There's very little charity funding for that reason compared with heart disease and cancer, which have not only a large amount of government funding for research, but also have a lot of charity funding, whereas the charity funding for lung disease is extremely low, and they fund just a few grants a year for the whole UK. So it is a problem, the, the, the lack of funding. And, and that, of course, is also reflected by a lack of investment 
by the pharmaceutical industry to discover new treatments. And we know from COVID-19 and from HIV AIDS that investing money to find new drugs is successful. So the more money you invest, the more likely you are to find effective treatments as we've seen for those diseases. But when you don't invest, you don't discover new treatments. And we we ran a, a meeting when I was the president of the European Respiratory Society, looking at why funding for respiratory research and drugs, uh, in finding new drugs is, is so low. And, you know, one of the, the shocking facts is that there were new, there were less new types of treatment discovered for respiratory diseases than for any other class of disease. And that is pretty much related to the poor investment. And even now, many pharmaceutical companies have completely stopped investing money in finding new drugs for asthma and COPD. It's quite shocking. You've raised a, a number of issues there, um, including the cost of poor asthma control. So if people are not managed it adequately, it costs a lot of money. You've raised the issue about increasing public awareness of, of respiratory disease and asthma in particular, the need for people to be able to use their inhalers correctly and for doctors to be able to teach patients correctly. And also knowledge of an implementation of evidence-based guidelines for, for respiratory disease and asthma. And so to come to one of the points you raised about pharma companies and new drug development, you're probably aware that at the moment there, there is a major problem on the horizon with the availability or the future availability of the F gases, the so-called fluorinated gases, which are used to propel the drugs in um, the puffers, the meter dose inhalers. Um, and uh, the, the problem really is that uh, legislation might come in um, banning these substances before the pharma companies can actually produce new drugs and test them and bring them to market. You got any thoughts on that? Well, I, I think the, the environmental impact of meter dose inhalers, you know, the puffers that, that people use, in asthma and COPD has been greatly over-exaggerated. It's a tiny impact on the environment. And many patients rely on those sort of inhalers, um, especially relievers like salbutamol um, relievers that they take to relieve their symptoms. The, the, they're used to taking a puffer rather than a dry powder inhaler, which has to be sucked in. And I think that if these drugs are not available, it's going to be a big problem for patients. They're going to be frightened that they don't have the inhalers that they've always relied on to relieve their symptoms when they get bad. Yeah, I don't know if you're aware, but... <clears throat> We published a paper on this um, from the Global Initiative on Asthma um, last week. And our biggest concern is really for um, children, older people who depend on that type of inhaler, um, you know, people with manual dexterity problems, and also availability in low and middle income countries. 
and we're really concerned that, as you say, the the fact that um, these gases in the inhalers contribute so little to the uh, global warming potential that unfortunately a lot of the focus is on a, a so-called low-hanging fruit, target people with respiratory disease rather than big mm. industries. But um, let's come back to the drugs. And what, what do you think are the most effective medication, um, most effective drugs which are available for the use in asthma? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, the, the most effective drug of all is an inhaled steroid because that damps down the inflammation which causes the symptoms of asthma. And therefore, it not only controls the disease, but it also prevents flare-ups of asthma. Um, but the problem is that patients tend not to take this treatment because it doesn't relieve their symptoms immediately, like a bronchodilator does. Um, so adherence with inhaled steroids is extremely low. It's less than 20% in some studies. But patients do use the relievers. So relievers are important because they they make the, you know they take away the symptoms when people are bad, and of course, you need them to treat flare-ups of asthma. But we know that just relying on relievers is potentially dangerous because while people feel better because their airways have opened up. It doesn't address the underlying inflammation, which is causing the airways to narrow. So they can actually end up worse in the end. And so that's why combining a steroid with a reliever seems to be the best strategy, because every time they use a reliever to relieve the symptoms, then they're getting a dose of anti-inflammatory treatment to damp down the cause of the symptoms. And using relievers that contain steroids, known as anti-inflammatory relievers or AIR, does seem to be the best strategy now for controlling asthma in the real world because it follows the pattern that patients use. You know, patients are very poor at taking preventive treatment when they don't have symptoms and e even knowing this i mean doctors for example have terrible adherence to inhaled steroids i mean doctors with asthma yeah. and 
I remember Greta Barnes once did a, stu a study of doctors that had asthma and how they treated it. And I was one of the subjects. And it turned out that almost none of them ever took inhaled steroids regularly, even though they knew they should do. Because it's human nature not to take things that you don't think you need at the time. So I think this anti-inflammatory reliever approach is by far the simplest way to gain better control of asthma. Because there's one really interesting study that, that was done in the real, a real world study. So it, it was looking at when anti-inflammatory reliever was introduced, the number of exacerbations that patients had was reduced by 90%. And that's because most of these patients were never taking inhaled steroids. So when they were switched to the anti-inflammatory reliever, the only inhaled steroid they ever took was when they got bad. And that seemed to prevent the next attack, as was subsequently proved in a, in a controlled trial. So an anti-inflammatory reliever could be a steroid with a short-acting beta agonist like salbutamol, or better still, with a long-acting beta agonist that works rapidly as a reliever, of which the only example is formoterol. So formoterol steroid inhalers are really the ideal treatment for patients to use now. Um, of course, they, if they have frequent symptoms, they should use it regularly as a maintenance treatment twice a day, as we always used to recommend. But then they use it as a reliever as well. So they only have one inhaler, which makes management of asthma much easier uh, for the patient because they have the one inhaler. Um, and I, I think this is a, an excellent approach. And of course, what we really want is a cure for asthma, where you take a treatment that makes the disease go away forever. But I think we're a very long way from that because we don't really understand why people get asthma in the first place. What are the switches that that become permanent that that leads them to lifelong asthma? So we're very far from developing a cure. So in the meantime, we should take the most effective treatment, which I think is this air strategy, because it, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that, you know, you, you could have many, many different types of inhaler that with, with different steroids, but they should contain formoterol or a short-acting beta agonist. So th that's a, a very important approach to therapy. Um, a, a lot of attention is focused on severe asthma, but I think, you know, it's important to point out that severe asthma it affects only 3% of all patients with asthma, although it does account for a lot of the costs because these are the patients that get admitted to hospital and uh, are losing time off work and are using a lot more medication. And there have been advances in new treatments for certain types of severe asthma where they have a, an eosinophil pattern of inflammation and the, the new treatments are biologics that are given by injection uh, that target the eosinophil inflammation that drives the severe asthma. And they work really well in, in the right patients, but it's only a very small percentage of the asthma population. 
I mean, it's been worked out that about 1% of asthma patients can benefit from these biologics. So we really need to focus on mild to moderate asthma, which accounts for the vast majority of patients with asthma. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And certainly this approach, uh, the air therapy approach, would make life a lot easier for general practitioners because it would uh, they'd have less work to do because people will come in with fewer attacks, but also people will be better controlled and feel a lot better. I, I interviewed uh, Richard Beasley on this topic a few weeks ago, and um, he's done quite a lot of recent research. And following the, um, the Global Initiative for Asthma's um, change in 2019 from the traditional way of treatment that you were talking about before, where for the last 50 years, doctors have been prescribing short-acting relievers for asthma. And the change was really the recommendation that everybody with asthma should be prescribed an inhaled corticosteroid, either regularly or as needed in combination with a reliever. And so when it comes to another question, and that is, um, do inhaled steroids work on everybody with asthma? Well, they work on pretty much everyone if they if they take them. Um, but people with more severe asthma need higher doses. And a few unfortunate patients need to take steroid tablets on a regular basis, which, of course, have a lot of side effects. So for those patients, these new treatments, at least if they have the eosinophilic type of severe asthma, have been a major advance because it's meant that many of those patients can reduce the dose of steroid tablets and many can get off them completely. But as, as I said, this is a very small percentage. There are very, very rare patients that seem to be completely resistant to steroids. But these are very rare patients. We, we used to study them quite extensively because they were quite interesting to us. Because if we understood why these patients didn't respond to steroids, we'd understand how steroids work in the majority that do respond. So we did work out the molecular um, mechanisms that were responsible for steroid resistance, but it's extremely rare in asthma, but is the usual case in COPD. So COPD patients have very poor response, if any, to inhale steroids. And yet they're very widely prescribed to, to treat COPD quite inappropriately. And on, on that topic, um, our, our colleague, our late colleague, uh, um, Graham Crompton, who worked with me on the National Review of Asthma Deaths, noticed that a number of patients were being diagnosed, these are people who died from asthma, were being diagnosed with COPD and their um, inhaled corticosteroids were stopped. And we think that's one of the main reasons why those people died. And so if somebody's got COPD and they've also got asthma, um, what, what should the, the treatment involve? Well, if, they, if they've got asthma and COPD? Yeah. And um, how can doctors tell whether they've got both diseases? Yes. Well, I think, it, it, you know, it, it, it's important to do lung function test spirometry because if they have an irreversible you know if, if you give them a 
a high dose of bronchodilator and they still have obstruction, then that means they either have structural changes due to chronic asthma or they have COPD, which of course is more common if they, they smoke as well. And those patients, um, the, the, I mean, steroids don't reverse that obstruction. I mean, we always used to do a trial of, of maximum dose of steroid tablets, we call it a steroid trial, to see which patients would respond to steroids or not. And if they didn't respond, which was usually the case of COPD, then, then steroids were not going to help them. But we often would find that people that we thought were COPD would respond to steroid tablets after, after two or three weeks. And so they had a, a steroid responsive component and they would be suitable for an inhaled steroid. So I think it, if, if pa pa patients with COPD have any clinical features of asthma, so they may have had asthma as a child, or if the eosinophil count in the blood, which is a simple blood test that's a routine test done commonly as part of the of the normal blood test, if they have a high blood eosinophil count, then those are the ones that benefit from inhaled steroids. And I think we need to get GPs to, to measure eosinophil counts in these patients where they're not certain, because what you don't want to do is put someone on a high dose of inhaled steroids that doesn't need it because we know that high dose inhaled steroids over long periods of time and actually longer than clinical trials usually last can develop side effects uh, such as thinning of the bones that leads to fracture to diabetes it can make lung infections worse including tuberculosis but also pneumonia so we really have to be more selective in in which patients get inhaled steroids um, if the if there's if they have COPD. Um, but the other treatment that's quite helpful uh, in patients with asthma and COPD and in asthma patients that have irreversible narrowing, which is a type of COPD, is is to give a, an inhaled long acting um, muscarinic antagonist or anticholinergic like teotropium bromide uh, because the, this treatment can improve their lung function and in fact that's led to the development of triple inhalers that have a steroid a long-acting beta agonist and a long-acting muscarinic antagonist um, so these triple inhalers are obviously more convenient than taking three or two inhalers, mm -hmm. but shouldn't be given to everyone because most people with asthma don't need an anticholinergic and most people with COPD don't need an inhaled steroid. So it means that people really have to look at the patient and decide more accurately which treatment they deserve rather than giving everyone triple inhalers, which I think is very bad medicine.
Thanks. That's that's helpful. And so, <clears throat> with um, with your experience in in research, and uh, you you've said that a cure for asthma is probably a long way away. Um, but from your experience, what what do you think is on the horizon in terms of uh, drug management of asthma? What what new drugs can you see coming that um, might help people with asthma? Well, I must say most of the research on new drugs has focused on severe asthma because that obviously is an unmet need, and, but it's such a small percentage that that you may think it it's it's not really helping the rest of the patients with asthma. I mean, what we don't know is whether some of these treatments developed for severe asthma are going to be suitable for patients with mild to moderate asthma. Um, one issue is that these treatments at the moment are biologic, biological treatments, which have to be given by injection, and they're extremely expensive. So we couldn't give them to everyone, even if they worked, probably. Uh, but I think people are probably going to be looking at whether some of these could be used for less severe patients uh, in the future. Um, there is one big advantage of biological therapies is that they're given by injection, uh, usually once a month, although one of the anti-eosinophil treatments is given, can be given every two months. And one anti-eosinophil treatment in development can be given once every six months. And so these are quite convenient treatments in a way. And patients don't mind having injections if they work. I mean, just think of diabetes patients oh. in that respect. So people always thought that patients wouldn't take wouldn't tolerate injections, but they do if they're effective. But another big advantage, of course, is you know the patient's got the dose, at least if it's supervised by a healthcare professional. So it overcomes the problem of poor adherence that we talked about earlier uh, in, in the session. So I, I think that, that there will be treatments that, that spread out from severe asthma to maybe moderate asthma, which is more common. It's about 20% of people have moderate asthma. Um, but the, there's a group of people with severe asthma that don't have eosinophil inflammation, and we don't have any good treatments for them. And that's because the inflammation is different, and it involves more neutrophils, uh, which is more like the inflammation that we see in COPD patients. And we don't have very good treatments for this neutrophil type of inflammation. So people are looking for that. They're also looking for, for tablets that that do the same thing as steroids on eosinophil inflammation. And there are one or two drugs in development that could be given as a tablet that target inflammation. Uh, because I guess patients would find it easier to take tablets. But a, a big advantage of tablets and injections is that they they treat associated allergic diseases at the same time. So many patients with asthma 
have allergic rhinitis or rhinitis that may not be allergic. And they also may have atopic dermatitis or eczema, which have a similar type of inflammation. So if you give a tablet or an injection, you may treat these diseases with the same therapy. Whereas if you give an inhaler, it only treats the lung inflammation and you have to use a, a nasal inhaler to treat the rhinitis or a skin treatment to treat the eczema. So well, thank you. There are lots lots of lots of fascinating ideas and um hope for the future really. And so finally, um Peter, um can I ask you to summarize some key messages for people with asthma, for doctors treating people with asthma and also for those um, um, managers or um, government or national health service organizations that are responsible for care for people with asthma? Well, as, as we discussed before, I think it's really important that patients get treated with inhaled steroids because this is by far the most effective treatment that we have at the moment to control the underlying inflammation of asthma. Um, and it's therefore important that patients actually deliver the inhaled steroid to their airways. Um, and of course, we use inhalers in order to av avoid the side effects of steroids that you see when you give the same drugs by mouth. So getting people to use inhalers on a regular basis is important. But we know that patients don't use inhalers on a, on a regular basis. They use them when they have symptoms, which is why the best treatment to manage asthma in the community is the anti-inflammatory reliever that contains the short-acting bronchodilator, the beta agonist that relieves the symptoms, which is why they use the reliever, but also contains the steroid that controls the inflammation. And I think that's by far the most important message, because not only will this improve asthma control in the community, it will markedly reduce hospital admissions. It will be suitable for children with asthma, and it's not approved in many places for children, but we know it works in children. And it's often used for children, even though it's not approved officially. Um, and it's such a simple treatment because it's one inhaler and, it, and it's been shown to be by far the most cost-effective way of managing asthma because it's the best way of preventing exacerbations, which account for a lot of the cost of asthma. And that's clearly a message for everybody involved uh, across the board. Well, thank you so much, uh, Peter. I should be saying Sir Peter. Um, I don't, I don't think time. you should. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time. It's been a fascinating discussion, and um, I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you, Mark. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you found this helpful, and I hope you did, please click the like and the follow buttons and share this podcast. Please do send me any feedback or questions to my email address, asthmaspotlight at gmail.com, and I'll do my best to answer these in future episodes.